0: Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water, dwelling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Father, Indeed, it is by your Spirit that you have given us your Word, that we might know that there is joy in your presence, that we might know that there is a joy greater than the joy we seek in this world. So to have this joy, it is vital that we understand and believe your Word, and we need your Spirit to illuminate the Word for us so that we can understand it we need your spirit to work in our hearts and minds that we would believe and treasure what your word says. And so fill us with lasting joy this morning in accordance with your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who died for your joy as well as ours. Amen. When I was a kid, we lived in Nashville, New Hampshire, as some of you may remember. Not an exciting place to live. Uh, my father's mother lived in Lawrence, Mass, which is probably about 45 minutes away. And, you know, being a good son, he would bring us to see our Nana. Don't laugh at that title. Some people don't like They look like Nana and they think it's funny. It's an Italian thing, all right? So we'd go visit Nana, and one of the things that we would often do when we went to visit Nana is we would get water. That sounds kind of odd probably to you right now. Why do you drive 45 minutes to go get water? Well, there in downtown Lawrence, well not quite downtown, but close to where my grandmother lived, there was a spring. And it flowed all the time and my father must have gotten water from this spring when he was a child. And so now he's bringing us to get water from this spring as we were children. You see, of course, the water in Nashua, as most public water is, all the chlorine and all that kind of stuff in it, so it doesn't taste all that great, but that spring water, that was like water from heaven. I mean, he almost lived for that water in some ways, and so we would bring uh, a trunk full of those plastic gallon water jugs, and we would spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes just filling up a jug, capping it, filling up a jug, capping it, and we drive home in our car with a trunk full of good spring water for drinking water in our home. We did that most of my childhood until we finally got one of those water purifier things. <laughs> then it all stopped, you know. But good water was hard to find. It was an important sort of thing, but you know, we always got thirsty. We have to keep going back to Lawrence. The big idea is that Jesus bestows eternal life through the Spirit. And that, will, that story will make sense, I hope, as we get into this text. The first thing I want us to keep in mind as we look at this particular text is that Jesus came to seek those who were not like him. That's a very important thing. As we look at this text, let's not forget this. This all sort of gets laid out with the idea that his ministry there in Judea was beginning to boom. Uh, He was getting more disciples than John. The fulfillment of what we saw John saying in chapter 3 is coming to pass. Okay, John the baptizer had said, I must decrease, he must increase. It was taking place. Jesus' uh, disciples were growing in great numbers, and this caught the attention of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Jesus, not wanting yet to provoke this confrontation with the Pharisees, decides it's time to head out of Judea and up to Galilee, from which he started his ministry. He's going to go through Samaria. It's interesting that it says he must go through Samaria, because he didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, many Jews chose to go around Samaria, kind of out of their way, but Jesus chose to go through Samaria, and so there may be something here of a divine appointment that he knew he had to keep. We're not sure exactly what that means, but he must go. So Jesus travels through with his disciples. They stop at this little place called Sychar, which is a very significant place because of the well of Jacob. This is important in the history of the people of Israel. This is the well that Jacob dug with his own hands. It was a much-contested sort of well. We'll see how that plays into the story in a little bit. He's there by the well. The, the disciples have gone off to get some food. It's the sixth hour or noon. Now, we all know we live in a desert. We know what it's like. When, when's the last time you would want to have to go fetch water from the Well, around noon (laughs) okay so this woman coming out should sort of be make you scratch your head for a moment it should be a hint that something isn't quite right with this woman okay that there's something going on behind the scenes that is going to prompt this particular meeting with this woman jesus is described here as being weary aren't you glad that the son of man Could be weary. Aren't you glad because he understands our own weariness? He understands something of our own thirst. He understands something of our own hunger because the disciples are getting food, therefore Jesus must be hungry, and he asks for water, and so I'm assuming he must be thirsty after this long journey through the wilderness. Jesus understands weariness. Jesus understands weakness. In fact, Augustine says that he fashioned us in his strength. He came looking for us in his weakness. It is in his weakness that Jesus obtained salvation for us. See, that's why we read from John 19. Because there again, Jesus says, I thirst, or I am thirsty. Again, his weakness is on display, but this time in a saving sort of moment as he dies upon the cross. But not only does he save us in his weakness, but we see here that his weakness is going to provide him with an opportunity to make himself known to somebody, what we would sometimes call evangelism, okay? He's doing this as he is going, you know, that little phrase there from the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. As he's going, he is making himself known to people. And this woman is one of them. This is a different one than Nicodemus, because remember, Nicodemus sought him out under the cover of night. This one is in broad daylight, and the woman isn't seeking Jesus, but she goes to the same place where Jesus is, and they have a conversation. It's a gentler conversation than the one that we find with Nicodemus. He was perhaps a little harsh with Nicodemus because Nicodemus needed someone to really kind of shock his world a little bit. He's going to shock this woman's world a little bit too, but he's going to do it in a different way. We see here that Jesus is crossing boundaries. When he asks her for water, she comes up with this question, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for water from me, a woman of Samaria? And so this brings up two important aspects of, of this, the differences that were between them. First off, Jews had very minimal contact with Samaritans. Okay, they didn't avoid them completely, but if they had the opportunity to avoid them, they would. Okay, we see that the, um, the disciples are going to buy food from the Samaritans, so you know, they could do that, but we'll get into why this is more, a little more shocking perhaps in a moment. But, not all of you may be familiar with the problems between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans were partially from the northern kingdom, okay, Israel, after the, the, the divide after Solomon died. Okay? They were the first ones to apostatize. And then when the Assyrians came and just cleaned house, and they took most of the important people up into Assyria and other places, they scattered them through an exile. They brought in foreigners... To live in the land of Israel with the poor people. And so what do you think might happen? They intermarried. Which wasn't too bad, except for the fact that they took their religious practices and sort of synchronized them. And so they had some beliefs that were consistent with Judaism, but they had some of these other ones kind of brought in from the other peoples that they had intermarried with. And so they had a problem. And so the Jews who came back from their exile in Babylon years later, they didn't quite have a good relationship with the Samaritans because they saw them as religiously flawed and uh, mingled. They had a big problem with them. But Jesus speaks to her. He doesn't use uh, you know, the normal cultural barriers to get in his way because she needs something greater from him than she understands and what he is asking from her. Jesus is going to cross this boundary. Now, the, the Samaritans were considered unclean, and so for Jesus to receive water from her, from the bucket that the Samaritans used, doesn't this sound familiar, perhaps, would be considered, the water would be considered unclean. And Jesus is basically saying to her, that doesn't matter to me. That doesn't apply to me. I'm not made unclean by you. and so he crosses that boundary that she might know the greatness of the gospel secondly there's the as- the aspect of that jewish men didn't ordinarily speak to women that weren't part of their families in public there were greater boundaries than we have you know they didn't hang out at bars there were no pickup lines for jewish men okay and so it was it was awkward and unusual for a man to talk to someone with, to whom he was not related or there was no friendship with the men in the family. And so here he is, like a cold call, talking to this woman at this well. And so Jesus was from a different people, of a different culture. He was a, of a different sex and a different religion. And, and yet he crossed those lines to make himself known to her. Jesus, in addition to uh, revealing who he is, is also laying something of a pattern for us. That we should be willing as followers of Christ who have been given the Spirit to cross some of those uncomfortable lines. And we all have different uncomfortable lines. But we have something great to offer people. That means we should cross those borders. That we shouldn't hide behind what's comfortable for us, but be willing to go into a scary sort of situation, not physically dangerous, but one in which emotionally, perhaps, we're uncomfortable for the cause of making Christ known. But Jesus wasn't just looking for water at this appointment. Jesus is also looking for a bride. Mike in his Sunday school class talked about how whenever there's a man at a well, there's usually a marriage soon to follow. Okay, uh, we, we saw it in the reading from Genesis this morning. Uh, you know, It was Abraham's servant. He's come looking for a wife for Isaac, and he meets her at a well. Jacob, when he's running for his life away from his brother who's ratted him because he stole the blessing, ends up at a well, and he meets the woman that will steal his heart forever. Moses, when he's running from his life, hey, that sounds familiar, because he's killed an Egyptian, ends up at a well and meets the woman that will be his wife. And so, there's something going on here. Jesus is looking for a woman who's going to be part of his bride. This makes complete sense when we remember from John 2, Jesus is the bridegroom. The wedding feast that's to come. And John, the baptizer himself, talks about Jesus as the bridegroom and him the friend of the bridegroom. And so it makes perfect sense that what is happening here is Jesus is seeking his bride. And so Jesus' ministry reveals that the gospel is for all kinds of people with all kinds of problems. Let's move deeper. For Jesus is greater than Jacob. Jacob. So she asked this question, which seems sort of a little, you know, hey, a little confrontational, perhaps. What are you asking me this question for? And Jesus sort of turns the tables on her in a gentle sort of way. If you knew the gift of God. Now, it's gentle, but it's also barbed. She doesn't understand the gift of God because she doesn't understand the promises of God because she, as a Samaritan, only affirms the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five. And so there are all these promises that are given in the rest of the Old Testament that she has no access to and does not understand precisely what Jesus, who Jesus is going to be and what he's going to offer. She doesn't, ha- she doesn't know these things. So she's, there's a, an aspect of ignorance for her to the promises of God. She does not know Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. She's ignorant of Isaiah 12. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. She's ignorant of Isaiah 44. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the, on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So she doesn't understand the gift of God, and I believe specifically in the context here, the gift of the Spirit. If she understood who Jesus was, she would ask for this but she does not understand who Jesus is, and she does not understand these promises of salvation. She's understandably ignorant of who he is. Very few people knew who he was. And she had just met him for the first time. But Jesus says that he offers her living water. Now that's an unusual phrase, we don't hear that very often these days, and it's a very, actually a very simple phrase. And that has to do basically with running water. Not water in a cistern, not water from a pond, but water that comes from a source. Okay, Jacob's well, which was a deep well, the reason why it had lasted for uh, almost 2,000 years at this point, okay, was because down there was a spring bubbling up living water running water flowing water and so this the spring kept replenishing itself even though you know jacob and his sons and now the samaritans for 2000 they've been drinking from this water there was always more sort of like the spring that you know my my father drank from it as a kid and you know years later we're drinking from it um i haven't been back in a little while so i don't know if it's still flowing i'm sure it is it's living water there's a source that outweighs Droughts and changes in uh, weather. It's a living water. So, like Nicodemus, see, even though she's very different from Nicodemus, she's just like Nicodemus. Because she also misunderstands Jesus. Remember, Nicodemus has this idea of, well, how can I be born again? How can I go back in there and come back out again? This doesn't make sense to me, Jesus. She doesn't understand what he's really talking about perhaps because she's ignorant of the rest of the scriptures but she but she's materializing it she's wondering how are you going to get this living water because I'm looking at you Jesus and you don't have anything to get water out of this very deep well some travelers would have their own skins like skin goatskin buckets So, that if there was no one by the well, like at noon, you could drop it down into the well and pull it up and you'd have something to drink instead of waiting for someone to show up with their own bucket. Okay? Uh, Abraham's servant, I'm sure, had one of those on himself, but that was the test that he used to find out the woman that would marry Isaac. Okay? So she looks and, okay, there's just you, I don't see a bucket. How are you going to get this water that's down there? And besides, who do you think you are? Okay? Are you greater than Jacob? And so she's looking at him and she thinks she's probably a little daft. For those of you who don't know what that means, it's crazy. He's Meshuggah. He's offering her this water that he can't get in her mind. There's more going on here than she understands. This well, this is part of the greatness of Jacob. Not only did God use him to bring about a nation through this 12 sons, but there was this well that had been putting forth water for 2,000 years. And so she has, in her mind, this direct connection to her patriarch, Jacob, because she still has the well. Every day she can come out and she draws water from this well and she remembers Jacob, the greatness of this man that he found the right place to dig for water and we still receive the benefits of what he has done and in her mind he is a great man and who's this crazy guy traveling through my town you know what that well is still producing water 4000 years but you know Jesus is greater than Jacob cuz Jacob just dug a well He found a stream. He found a spring. He didn't create the spring. He just dug up dirt. But Jesus is greater, because he's going to do something. Jesus is basically going to bring heaven down to earth so that people can experience true life. So yeah, if Jesus had completed her thought, I am greater than Jacob. He'll get there. We have have a few more weeks to kind of play with that. But Jesus is greater than Jacob in that he can provide living water to all, not just to the people who live right by that well. But what is that living water? Third thing is that Jesus sends the sufficient spirit to satisfy our thirsty souls. Okay, The living water that Jesus offers her is the Holy Spirit Himself, and the Holy Spirit Himself will bring eternal life. Remember, he talked to Nicodemus. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and the Spirit. He's talking to Nicodemus about regeneration. That in order for you to be saved, God must first give you new life. Here he's talking about something different. He's talking here about the indwelling Spirit. Not regeneration, but the Spirit as it comes and dwells within us, remains within us. And brothers and sisters, we need both. Every sinner needs both of those. They don't need just regeneration. They also need the indwelling of the Spirit. You don't need just the indwelling. You also need regeneration. And here's the good part. They both come. You can't have one and not the other. Apologies to our Pentecostal brothers. Okay. If, you're, if you are regenerated, you have the indwelling spirit. They come together, but Jesus is talking to a different person about what she needs in light of the needs that she has in ways that we thought we she could understand. This points us to the fact that Christianity, when we get down to it, is a supernatural, spiritual kind of thing. Okay. While there is a code of morality with Christianity, Christianity is not a code of morality. Understand the difference there. Christianity is not summed up in the Ten Commandments. Christianity is not a code of life. Christianity is a living relationship with the Lord who created you that leads you to obey those Ten Commandments. Okay? It's not like the Ten Commandments are gone forever, but we have life through our union with Christ by faith. And so we have the Holy Spirit who comes within us and dwells within us, and so that's really the dynamic of the Christian life. We'll explore this in a little bit. Hang on. But let's get to the root evil. Jeremiah 2 talks about the root evil in a way which really connects with what we see right here at the, the Jacob's well in Sichar in Samaria. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so Jeremiah is, is talking about idolatry. They've turned away from God who is the fountains of living water, which she would have known if she had read Jeremiah, but she didn't believe Jeremiah was important. Okay. So leaving God, but then trying to find life in, in these other things of life, which Jeremiah calls cisterns, and broken cisterns that don't hold water. So the things that we seek to find our life in, they, doesn't, they don't work. This is what we do as sinners as we look for life and satisfaction everywhere but in Christ that is the essence of sin to seek life apart from God in anything that is not God now we didn't read this yet but we're going to see next week and I'm going to cheat and go in right now Jesus says go and get your husband and she says I don't have a husband and he says that's right you've had five and the guy you're with now Not your husband. Where was she seeking life? Men. She was seeking to find significance and security and everything else that that is connected with life by men. A series of men. Her idol was men. And they keep letting they kept letting her down, because that's what idols do. They demand and they demand and they demand, but they never deliver on what they promise. They keep letting you down. In uh, Tim Keller's book *Encounters with Jesus*, he uh, he quotes part of a speech from a postmodern writer, which was kind of interesting to me, because the guy is so on and yet he's so far. Okay. And this man's name is David Foster Wallace. I almost wish Reno was here. She'd probably know who David Foster Wallace is. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. And I'll stop for a second. Remember Carnegie's comment. How much, I can't remember if it was Carnegie or Rockefeller. They blur in my brain. How much money is enough? A dollar more than I have. Okay, it's never. These guys were rich beyond anything you could imagine. All right, back to this. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Those politicians never have enough power and money, do they? Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, but that they are unconscious. They are default settings. In other words, we're usually not aware we're doing it when we're doing it. She wasn't consciously thinking, I'm going to find my life in men. She just kept doing it. We don't think I'm going to find my life in power. We just keep seeking it. And so it's it's sort of this unconscious thing that that people do. And so we can ask people, what are you seeking? What drives you? And your, your quest in life to uncover what's really kind of their, their driving idol, their, their driving force. Do you know what happened to Wallace? A few years after he gave that speech, he killed himself. He got eaten alive by what he worshipped. But be very careful about what you worship because it will kill you unless it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, None of these idols that people serve can satisfy. More and more, they're hungry. But let's contrast that to this living water. Jesus describes it as a spring that wells up an everlasting life. In other words, it's it's, well. It's like a spring. It just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And so, no matter how much you drink from it, there's always more. It replenishes itself. Now, Jesus says the person who drinks from this will never thirst. And, you know, we've got some passages that make us go, wait a second here. We sang it, uh, some of those from Psalm 42, about the thirst. I'll I'll repeat from verse 2 of Psalm 42. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. there Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Are we to understand what Jesus says to be in conflict with those particular psalms? And I think no, (laughs) because Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. So how are we going to fit these things together? I think all of us have experienced the ebb and flow of the Christian life. That there are those moments when you're filled with the joy of the Lord, it's your strength, and, and God seems very close to you. And then there are those moments when He seems a million miles away, and you yearn for Him, and you thirst. And usually those moments are because of affliction or sin. But the cure is not to get saved again. The Spirit is still there. And so what Jesus is saying is you, you don't have to go back to the well. Okay, Now, remember, when we, when we emptied that last water jug, where do we go? We went back to Lawrence, Massachusetts to get more water. This woman at the well, what would she do? Every, every day she'd have to go get more water at the well. We don't have to go back to the well, is what Jesus is saying. Because the, he, this, the well lives within us. And though there are days in which it seems dry, it's not really. And so your subjective experience is not the true measure of where you are. The Spirit's still there, the Spirit's still at work. The Spirit is still getting you to think, man, I'm thirsty. I need God. But she was confused. Her greatest hope was that she didn't have to come back to the stupid well. <laughs> Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophets' uh, promises, but also, amazingly, there is this promise in the Samaritan liturgy. Water will flow from Messiah's buckets. So she should have had a clue about something she has the opportunity to receive the fulfillment of that promise found in her own liturgy, assuming she went to synagogue anyway, to receive water flowing from Messiah's buckets. I can't help but think, processing all of this, this is the water park down on Alvernon, just off of Alvernon, that we've occasionally gone to with the kids. And this is similar to many other water parks, because you've got these big buckets. And there's always water flowing into the buckets. And if you stand under the bucket, you'll get maybe some overflow, and it may be a little dry for a few moments, but eventually that bucket fills. And when it does, boom, it all crashes down on you, and you are soaked. Then there's no more water while it fills. So if you wait long enough, boom, you stay wet. Think of it that way. The water's still flowing. But there are moments in which it just just crashes down upon us and saturates us. And we know the presence of God, and we know the blessings of His people, and all the promises of the covenant. And there may be a few dry moments, but don't worry, another bucket's on the way because the Spirit's still at work. The Holy Spirit is still doing His thing. For instance, Paul in Romans 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so one of the things the Holy Spirit does is remind you of the love of God which is revealed in the cross of Christ. And so there may be times when you start to forget about that and he'll bring it back to you. He'll remind you in some way, he'll bring scripture to mind to you and remind you that we love not because, well, it's not because we loved him, but because he loved us and he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so one of the things that the Holy Spirit does as he wells up within us is say, you are loved by the Almighty God. That's not it. These words that Paul says were given to him by the Spirit, these spiritual words about spiritual things, the only way we can understand them is the Spirit. He illuminates the Scriptures. He shines his light on them so that our feeble minds can understand what's going on in there. And so part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us to understand the Scriptures so that we understand all that we have received in Christ Jesus. That's not all. There's more, as those people on TV say. We read about it. We confessed it earlier. He is the spirit of adoption. And so, not only that we are loved by God, but that God is our Father. How many of you didn't have a Father? You know how important a Father is He is a Father to us, He provides for us, He nurtures us, He protects us, He gives us wisdom. What a great Father He is. Not only that, but the the Confession talks about the Spirit of prayer. Oftentimes we don't even know how to pray. And Romans talks about how the Spirit works in us. And so in the groans we cannot understand, we're praying. The Spirit is praying through us, in us. That's not all. By the power of the Spirit, we put sin to death. We put the acts of the flesh to death. And so the Holy Spirit is also at work in us as part of this everlasting life to put the things that threaten it to death. To kill our lust. To kill our greed. To kill our envy. To kill our hatred. To kill our bitterness. And all of these things. That's not you doing it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit doing it bringing it to mind as you read the scriptures showing you what is wrong with your life and so that you in the power of the spirit can start to say no to it not anymore not today that's not all there's so much more that the holy spirit does that we don't have time for this morning that's why that's part of why Martin Lloyd Jones spent 55 sermons on this text. Okay? But the Spirit applies the salvation that Christ has purchased. In other words, just as without Jesus there's no salvation, without the Spirit there's no salvation. Because He's what brings it to you. So, that spring water was good. But my family always needed more. Today I'm thousands of miles from that spring. I can't just go and get some more. Jesus is greater precisely because he can give satisfying water to people from all over the world. They don't have to be in the right geographical spot. At the same time, the Spirit that He gives, has life in Himself, and therefore He gives eternal life and all its benefits to all the people Christ gives Him to. When you yearn for God, do you go to God? Or do you look for something else? That boredom you experience, that longing sometimes you experience, that ultimately is the longing for God, we confuse it with other things and we try to satisfy it with other food, sex, drink, internet, whatever. Bring it to God. That's your cue to seek Him, to draw near to Him, because He is the only one that can satisfy you. And so, as Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's the idea. We bring much glory to God when we go to Him for our ultimate satisfaction and when we bring others to find theirs in Him. Let's pray. Father, there's so much going on here. In a sense, have mercy on us. Be patient with us as we come to grips with these many things. May your Spirit be at work so that of all of these things, each of us would know where it is you want us to be engaged. Where our struggle is. What we have the hardest time seeking in you and look somewhere else. May your Spirit convict us and remind us of the greatness of Jesus to provide these things so that we can be more and more His. That our hearts would be more and more His. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.